Ladies and gentlemen, dear members of Parliament, dear Excellencies, dear friends, it is an honour to be able to say a few remarks at the beginning of this evening's debate. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Graham Ziegner and I was the editor of the book that has been launched this evening. As anyone who has edited a book, especially one that is based on a series of lectures, knows, this can never be achieved by one person alone. This book is the result of hard work from many in this room, and I would like to thank some of you. My first thanks goes to the contributors. Thank you very much for writing excellent, insightful and stimulating texts, and for agreeing once again to come and speak to us this evening. My second thanks goes to Politicos, the publisher of the book. I would like to especially thank Jonathan Wadman, Catherine Bailey, Alan Godden-Walker and Peter Tommins. Thank you for joining us in this project and being great partners to work with. My former colleagues at the LSE conference office are the third group I'd like to mention. There are too many things I need to thank you for, but one point I would like to make this evening, and I'm sure all the students here at LSE will agree with me, the events at the school which are being organised are excellent. I'd like to thank Alan Ravel, who manages the events programme, for working tirelessly to get the most sought-after global leaders to the LSE to debate with students the current state of the world, enabling us to understand the reasonful things just that bit better. On a final note, I'd like to thank this evening's panel. I was pleased to hear who, was, who agreed to come along. I was based in Brussels when the news came through, um, and they came through one by one, and I was very pleased. Um, I got the news that Gideon Rachman was coming, and the next morning I was on my way to work with the FT in my hand, reading the rear page, which always has Gideon's blogs on it, and uh, it said, the joy of bad reviews, the author of a savage book review is performing a public service. Um, I'm not, I wasn't sure at that moment um, whether people generally hope for a public service failure on the platform of the LSC. Um, but then, of course, I remembered who the contributors to the book were. And I remembered that these gentlemen are not in the business of failing the public. And without further ado, I therefore hand over to Professor Christopher Hill, who will be chairing this evening's debate entitled British Foreign Policy Challenges Facing the Next Prime Minister. Thank you very much. Good evening, Excellencies, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues. It's very nice for me to be back here in an institution very close to my own heart, where I spent many happy years, and for this uh, uh, rather important meeting. I think I'd like to, while we're on the, the uh, issue of thanks, certainly like to thank uh, Graham Ziegner, because he has put more work into this uh, excellent, if I may say so, book than uh, anyone else, and uh, deserves uh, our appreciation. It's an important meeting uh, because it's quite historic. I, I'm sure that uh, the distinguished uh, Secretaries of State uh, on my left here uh, meet reasonably often in private and have discussions about British foreign policy, but I think that it's probably quite infrequent that they meet on the same public platform. It's a bit like an expert version of BBC's Question Time on foreign policy, um, but uh, there won't quite be the scope for questions that there is on that program because uh, you want to hear from uh, our uh, distinguished colleagues. We are going to go in the order of uh, entry into the post of Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, which uh, starts, therefore, uh, with Lord Owen, uh, who is sitting here. Um, paradoxically, Lord Owen was actually 
the youngest uh, of, of them to enter into office. Indeed, he was the youngest Foreign Secretary since Anthony Eden uh, in the 1930s, and I don't think anyone has beaten that uh, since. He was Foreign Secretary between 1977 and 1979, and therefore he's the only uh, Labour Foreign Secretary uh, on the panel. But uh, he didn't stay with the Labour Party. Indeed, he founded the Social Democratic Party and became its leader between 1983 and 1990. He has continued to be very active uh, in international affairs, broadly understood. Indeed, he was EU Special Negotiator and former Yugoslavia 1992 to 1995. I could go on about all our contributors, but you really want to hear from them, and most of you know uh, quite a lot about them already. I only do so, not simply out of courtesy, but because my experience as a university teacher leads me to realise that people who are uh, completely familiar to me, and, and uh, of whom I have many uh, personal uh, memories as a citizen, as it were, watching politics on television and elsewhere, uh, may not be so familiar to those who were born uh, 20 or 30 years uh, after me. <coughs> the second of our contributors is uh, Lord Howe, um, uh, who is uh, sitting next, next to me in the, in the middle there. Uh, Lord Howe was uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, under Mrs. Thatcher of 1979 to 1983, Foreign Secretary 1983 to 1989, and Deputy Prime Minister 1989 to 1990. As he makes clear in his chapter in, in the book, um, it was a time of uh, some turbulence in relations between Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary. Um, but it was also a time of great importance on the substance of foreign policy. He was responsible for negotiating the agreement which led uh, to Hong Kong, being handed over to China. He uh, was present at the uh, emergence of Mikhail Gorbachev uh, as uh, the Soviet Union moved towards its closing years. He attended no fewer than 11 World Economic Summits uh, which uh, is uh, a burden not likely to be borne, I should think. And I should also say that his wife, uh, Lady Howe, has been a long-time supporter of the LSE and a member of the Board of Governors. After Lord Howe will come uh, Lord Hurd, uh, who was uh, Foreign Secretary 1989 to 1995, in other words, straddling the Thatcher-John major years, which was a very exciting time in international relations, of course, with the end of the Cold War, a period of enormous opportunities and hope, but uh, as always with periods of great change, also massive uh, challenges uh, as uh, uh, former Yugoslavia uh, started to fall apart and the challenges uh, uh, which arose from that became extremely difficult to handle. Lord Hurd uh, is an ex professional, was an ex professional diplomat before he became Foreign Secretary, having served uh, in uh, Peking, New York, and Rome, and in his uh, subsequent career has become well known uh, as a novelist. Our final uh, uh, Secretary of State who is uh, going to contribute is Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Uh, like uh, Lord uh, uh, Howe, he comes from a lawyerly background. He's also been an academic. Uh, he was Parliamentary Under Secretary and then Minister of State in the uh, Foreign Office, Parliamentary Under Secretary during the Falklands Crisis, I believe and then Minister of State during the crises uh, of the, the early years of the 1980s in uh, Poland. And I remember rather vividly uh, seeing on television his visit to uh, the grave of Father Popolusko in uh, Poland, the priest uh, uh, who was killed in that uh, unhappy uh, period. Uh, he uh, was also, uh, um, uh, he became Secretary of State uh, for Defence uh, after this 
period. He served uh, as, as uh, the minister right, right through the uh, Thatcher and Major years in one form or another, and he became Foreign Secretary in 1995 until the end of the Conservative period of government in 1997. That was an interesting and difficult time also in relation to the European uh, Union and the empty chair policy which Britain in some ways was uh, following at that time. After our four politicians, we will have two distinguished uh, discussants. Um, uh, we have Dr. Robin Niblett uh, sitting next to Sir Malcolm Rifkin. Um, Dr. Niblett has just, been, has just taken up the post of Director of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, which I'm uh, very glad to see. He's come back to uh, Britain from a period in Washington where he was Executive uh, Vice President of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, which is one of the most important uh, and successful think tanks in D.C. And while he was there, he uh, presided over very significant growth in, in, the, uh, in that organization. And I'm sure that Chatham House is uh, in for a new period of vibrancy under his leadership. And lastly, but not least, of course, we have Mr. Gideon Rackman, who's already been referred to, uh, the Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for the Financial Times since last year. Uh, he spent 15 years uh, in The Economist as, as a, a, a senior journalist, served in Brussels, in Washington, and in Bangkok, um, and his special interests, uh, as I suppose one could uh, deduce from knowledge of his period in The Economist, are American foreign policy, the European Union, and globalization. Now, it's obviously going to be pretty difficult for me to, uh, to uh, manage this uh, short period of time that we've got, but my colleagues have very kindly agreed to uh, stick to uh, a pretty short period each. Uh, we'll say uh, seven to eight minutes. Um, then, and the discussants will have five minutes each. And then I hope to take as many questions as possible from the floor, but I'm going to, and I'll repeat this later, later on, but I would ask you not to make speeches to ask <coughs> pithy questions of one individual uh, member of the panel so that we can get as, as many different aspects opened up as possible. And with that, uh, I hand over to the most important people of the evening, our uh, ex-Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, starting with Lord Owen. asked to address the issue facing the next Prime Minister and therefore it's not much looking back and I'm being asked to look at the relationship between the FCO and number 10 and the need for a fundamental rethink of foreign policy with regards to reactionary Islam. Well first I hope that Gordon Brown will learn the lessons of the machinery of government changes which I have dealt with in rather greater length in my uh, chapter and reinstate the cabinet secretariat and abolish the two secretariats established by Tony Blair immediately after the 2001 general election without any serious study. Uh, it was introduced and it took a long time for many people to understand the significance of these changes. There were appointed two very able people, uh, David Manning and Stephen Wall. And it's not their fault that the structure, I think, seriously let the policy down. I don't want to pretend that all the problems that have gone wrong in Afghanistan or Iraq 
can be laid at the door of the new Overseas and Defence Secretariat, nor the problems with the Constitutional Treaty and the Euro in the door of the new uh, European Secretariat. But I think we need to recognise that structure was set up with one purpose, which was to allow uh, Tony Blair the same freedom and independence of the rest of the Cabinet and of the governmental structures that it had been in part exercised by uh, Gordon Brown as Chancellor of the Exchequer, but in this case in the range of foreign policy and defence policy. I don't think there's ever been a time where the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence had less impact on the decisions of the British government. And of course, Cabinet can be criticised, but I think that structure which started in the First World War has served us pretty well. And if it means going back to the Ancien Regime, in my view, let us go back to the Ancien Regime. Let us also have a... uh, senior treasury official who is usually the senior um, private secretary and let us have somebody from the foreign office as the senior diplomatic secretary. I would want them to be better staffed than they have in the past and particularly that applies to the diplomat that went to number 10. But I don't think they need to build a big secretariat because if they do, that is an incitement effectively to exclude the Foreign Office and the Department of Defence. I believe this is an essential reform and I think that with it will go the uh, Chief of Staff as a political appointment in number 10. With it will come back a Cabinet Secretary who has responsibility right across the board and that is anything that can come to the Prime Minister and I believe that must include uh, intelligence. I think there is great merit in one person being in number 10 from the official side who has access to all the same information as the Prime Minister has access to. Then for the future, I would strongly hope that Gordon Brown would, if he wishes to change the present Foreign Secretary, not appoint somebody who is totally new to foreign affairs. If he wants to make changes, and if he wants to take account of how we must improve our understanding as well as our relationship of Iran, he would do a lot worse than apply than bring Jack Straw back, who did establish there was one distinctive area that he was able to do as Foreign Secretary, a real lasting and serious dialogue with the Iranian uh, Foreign Minister and the Iranian government and visited Tehran. And I think it would be a very clear indication that from now on we are not prepared to subsume our diplomatic effort within the United States and we cannot live with a situation where if Washington decides that they wish to exclude from diplomacy a country, then that cannot apply to us even if we're in a military alliance. I think it was a monumental mistake for us sitting in Basra not to have a continued and intelligent dialogue with the Iranian government at the highest level and I think that uh, it was maintained but under very uneasy circumstances and the same applies to Syria. So if we're looking to the future of how to deal with the Islamic government, I think absolutely fundamental is dialogue and using the expertise, and it's a very considerable expertise, that the Foreign Office has built up over many, many decades. Britain can rightly claim 
that on Iraq we have far more experience than any other country. And when the State Department's planning for the aftermath document, a great wadge of uh, documents, was completely pushed aside by the Pentagon, inside the State Department they hoped that the British Foreign Office would come in with a paper arguing for aftermath planning in elegant prose. No such paper ever came. And we were not playing a full hand and using our expertise on the question of Iraq and of the Middle East and the the issues of Islam. Now, structural changes in government cannot possibly do everything, but we have to stop a prime minister aping a president and swaggering into press conferences as a result of prior meetings of a couple of hours on Christian name terms with the president and believing that is the way to establish foreign policy. When prime ministers have met in the past with presidents, they have met so after a long and detailed pre-meetings with their foreign secretary and their defense secretary and officials and intelligence. And they've gone to Washington seriously plugged in to the expertise inside the British government at every relevant level. That sort of backing, that sort of effort was never behind uh, Blair's diplomacy. Now, it is very rare for us to have had a situation where we have had such a disastrous piece of diplomacy. Sue is, is certainly the closest analogy. But Eden was a very experienced prime minister who was ill at the time. And though he did concentrate a great deal of power within Number 10, the cabinet actually were informed of the clandestine negotiations with Israel. The cabinet were people who weighed in and eventually made Eden change the policy. We had no such thing from the last British cabinet over the last nearly 10 years. And I do hope that Gordon Brown will bring back cabinet government and cabinet authority. It is difficult to do when you're used to having as much power as Gordon Brown has had as Chancellor. But in this book, I believe, I say, and I believe it passionately, it will be the litmus test of whether he will make the transition from being Chancellor Exchequer to foreign, from Chancellor Exchequer to Prime Minister. It's not an easy transition. People do change when those, that transition takes place, usually for the better. But one thing you have to do is you have to be able to rely in the field of foreign policy and defense policy on colleagues. You can't expect to have, particularly somebody who's been so focused on economics, to have that reservoir of knowledge. So that was my final thing of saying, change the machinery of government, listen more, use the expertise within Whitehall, and above all, focus immediately on Syria and on Iran. With Iran helping, which was something that they were ready to do in 2002 and 2003 and was rejected by the White House, in my view, in a tragic way, with Iran helping, even the present mess in Iraq could be not solved, but greatly ameliorated. Thank you very much, Lord Owen. And now, Lord Howe, who I think will have some remarks to make about Europe, but all of our panellists have got a pretty open brief. Well, I 
begin by recalling, I think, no particular brief, but what I'm going to say, I think, fits reasonably well alongside what we've just been listening to from David Owen. I think I agree with every word that he said, and would like to start by saying that my relationship with Margaret Thatcher as a government colleague did actually extend over 15 years, four years as shadow ministers in opposition, 11 years in government. And I've tried to emphasize that more attention should be paid to the 15 years of our political marriage, which is longer than most marriages last these days, <laughs> and, and, and less attention to the circumstances of, of, of our divorce. <laughs> I am also the most antique of the Foreign Secretaries here, following on the, the youthful stripling that David still look, looks like. <laughs> and I, I therefore find it sensible to put my, my, my approach in a rather longer historical perspective with Europe as a recurrent theme, starting with a quotation from world, in the middle of World War II when the chief scientific advisor of the government, Sir Henry Tizard, said, we persist in regarding ourselves as a great power capable of everything and only temporarily handicapped by economic difficulties. We are not a great power and never will be again. We are a great nation, but if we continue to behave like a great power, we shall soon cease to be a great nation. I think that was a very perceptive insight uh, into the condition in which we ended World War I. Uh, we continued to try and do more than our power actually justified. In a phrase about which Douglas Hurd and I often differ, we continued not just then, but for some years thereafter, to punch above our weight. Douglas disclaims inventing it. I claim I invented it, but neither of us have ever really argued it out. Probably somebody else invented it. <laughs> but we were able, for example, with the authority and experience of a prime minister like Winston Churchill, to continue to behave as a great power and not just a great nation. And indeed, in many ways, I think that Margaret Thatcher, a prime minister of great distinction, did enable us to have that same capacity to some extent during her time much later. But in truth, I think that we found ourselves approaching the problems facing Europe uh, as the war faded into the past, as our partners in France and Germany began formulating the creation of the European community. We began establishing for ourselves a semi-detached and rather disdainful attitude, standing back from what they regarded as essential, healing the post-war wounds, coming together for the sake of preventing their recurrence and for much wider purposes. And I quote, I don't intend to go on quoting lots of things, but a very interesting observation made actually by someone we've almost entirely forgotten, Reginald Maudling, a potential, potential leader of the Conservative Party, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer. He said at one point, we have lost our pride, but kept our conceit. Mm. And John Payton, a subsequent minister of transport and of a great wit and wisdom, uh, amplified that a bit. He said, commenting on those words, it was pride which somehow carried us through the war. Without this, there would have been no platform from which to launch a new, a new crusade. But it was not pride, but conceit 
to lead us to believe that we can now go back to where we had been in 1939. In nothing has our conceit been so monumental as in our approach to the new Europe. It almost blinds us to the reasons which led the nations of Europe to come together. Like that has been a recurrent feature to a differing extent in every administration since Europe did begin coming together. Now we half realise the importance of trying to join the European community uh, and applied too late. We had the misfortune of being dismissed by General de Gaulle and when we did arrive we were not quite sure how committed we were going going to be. That I think has been the explanation of so many of the false ruptures in relationship. Uh, Had we been in from the outset, we probably should never have been confronted with the bloody bloody British budget question. We should have negotiated a better position in relation to that. Had we been in from the outset, I like to think that the common agricultural policy would not have turned out to be such a dramatic millstone out of the neck of the European community that it has been since. But we missed those opportunities because we were too proud or too conceited to become involved in them. And yet, we've increasingly come to realise the extent to which it is of huge importance for the countries of Europe to work together as effectively as they possibly can. It was important, even in those days, that if we look at the world today, with the emergence of other great countries and other great powers, above all with the re-emergence of what used to be the Soviet Union, as Russia, as it's being led by President Putin, Uh, of China, a country which I've visited often and for which I have great respect, conducting its foreign policy with great skill and great wisdom and opening embassies around the world while we are closing them, subject to the customary but I think undue pressure of the Treasury upon the Foreign Office, a battle on which I've been on both sides during my lifetime. But the, the, the Chinese are another example of a country exercising increasing wisdom as well as increasing power. So too India, a a remarkable country because it is in fact democratic. It's interesting to reflect, is it not, that this country with well over a billion people, with something between one and two hundred million Muslim citizens, was able at at its last general election, uh, having changed government through the ballot box about half a dozen times over the half century of its existence, to find a Hindu prime minister readily handing over power to a Roman Catholic victor in those elections, who then, as it were, subcontracted it to a Sikh Prime Minister, who was sworn into office by a Muslim President. A society that can achieve that, uh, with the resurgent economic success of India alongside China, is a world in which, more than it was so in 1945, we have to recognise the extent to which we are not a great power, but still have the contribution that a great nation can make. And we need to do it. And we are doing it effectively in institutions to which we've become accustomed. In the whole of trade policy, for example, through GATT and the WTO, Britain as part of the European Union is able to play a much larger part than we should be able to play as an independent entity. Uh, we're able to play, to play it increasingly, an increasingly important field, an environmental field, in which partnership amongst the European countries is of more and more importance. Uh, and indeed intermittently in in the political field insofar 
as we tried to do so and have, have tried in relation to Iran. Far better than to be trying to do it alone. If only we had been able and willing to address the post-9-11 problem, to achieve the best influence that Europe could have <coughs> on the subsequent conduct of the United States. I believe that we should have been able to press much more strongly the case that a number of us made in the House of Commons within three days of 9-11, the House of Lords, within three days of 9-11, that if the United States was to respond properly and effectively to that, she was certainly entitled to take action in self-defense to deter an identified and responsible performer of the events of 9-11 and to do that in the same way as we enabled her to do in relation to President Gaddafi in Libya some years before. But I said, and I think we all said, that if that policy was to be successful, the legitimacy of the case against the target attack had to be established as far as it could be in order to maintain the unity of worldwide support for whatever action the United States felt justified in taking by way of self-defense and not by way of, in the American all-too-common word, by way of response. Response is another way of saying retaliation, which there's no place in international affairs. And unfortunately, we were plugged in to the posture established by the American administration from an early stage. Tony Blair never, received a, never made a speech to Congress. I was there and Margaret Thatcher did so and received a standing ovation from Congress. Tony Blair didn't have to make a speech to receive two standing ovations from Congress. <laughs> Nothing, I think, is more calculated to impair the judgment of a British Prime Minister than a standing ovation from both houses of Congress. <laughs> and that is where we were plugged into a policy when Europe as a whole could, I think, have been presenting a restraining, moderating influence while sympathizing wholeheartedly with the horrors that the American people had had to endure. There are other earlier examples of the importance of political partnership. Like that, as a lawyer, I lay aside with some pleasure detailed discussion of the Constitution and the Constitutional Treaty for this evening and emphasize the, the reason why our partnership with our European neighbors has to go beyond environmental matters, has to go beyond trade matters, has to contain uh, a political component which will serve us well if we try and put it together properly. I quote now from a document of some 20 years age uh, as follows. The 10, that's the number then, of EC member states have the weight and must show more political will to act together, concentrate their efforts where their leverage is greatest and their interests most directly touched, for example, in the Middle East and Africa, and recognize that influence does not last if not backed by the necessary resources. The objective should be the progressive attainment of a common external policy. I quote from a document that I circulated as Foreign Secretary on Margaret Thatcher's behalf in July 1984, before the upcoming Milan Summit. If it was true then, then it's been made even more true by our experience since then. That, I think, is really the central message that I have to convey without exceeding my time limit. It's the message that induced Macmillan to take the step of joining the European community in 1962. It was the message that persuaded Edward Heath and he needed no persuasion to carry it forward in 1972. It's the message that impressed itself 
upon Margaret Thatcher when she was in office. It's a message which I dare to say, if you look carefully at the print today, increasingly appears in the speeches being made by a young gentleman who made his first speech on a public platform, the debate to which I have to reply at the Tory party conference uh, by the name of William Hague. Uh, I'd like to think that the message is not being lost. Uh, I, I hope very much that we shall understand the need for an effective partnership with our European partners in a world in which much greater forces are, are, are at large. When I say this, I do not at all intend to imply a rupture between ourselves and, and our American partners over so many years and so many centuries. I believe that it's important for us to maintain an effective partnership for Europeans and the United States within the wider world community to maintain an effective partnership together. I think the Americans need to pay more attention in the way we try to do to the need for multilateral diplomacy, to the need to cherish and make work the institutions which they helped to create in 1945, just as there's a need for us in Europe to do more, to make a positive contribution to the defensive component of our common approach to the world. I have no doubt that that is the way in which we should encourage Gordon Brown to, to move in the, in the years that I ahead. I think he does have an opportunity for correcting the grave mistakes made by his predecessor. My only anxiety is that he appears to have developed a, um, a rather overbearing fashion during his ten years of the Treasury. Chances of the Exchequer always like to do that. I wasn't there long enough. But the, <laughs> but, but the fact is that Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister Tony Blair, became increasingly authoritarian as the years went by until they reached the end of a decade in office. My great anxiety is that Gordon Brown has had ten years in practice before he even starts. In <laughs> so let, let's pray he's listening to the advice he gets here tonight and keep our fingers crossed. ranged tremendously widely in a very short period of time and now we have Lord Hurt um, who I think is going to say something about the important issues of humanitarian interventionism but he will speak for himself Thank you very much, it's been great fun taking part in this exercise and uh, so far um, I've agreed with everything that uh, has been said, I don't know what Malcolm's going to say in a few minutes time but we are I think forming if that's the right collective a consensus of foreign secretaries doesn't necessarily mean that we're wrong. <laughs> I, I, want to, I want to deal, as you, as you say, Mr. Chairman, with this question of humanitarian intervention. To what extent are we in Britain, but others like us, entitled or obliged to intervene by force, if necessary, in the affairs of, in the internal affairs of other countries, where and when in those countries Horrible things are happening and perceived by us, which we believe our intervention could prevent, even though there's no, in the old-fashioned phrase, no international, no effect of international peace, humanitarian intervention. But my time as foreign secretary was divided quite sharply into two. The first was, was traditional, in the sense we were fighting and actually very quite quickly winning the Cold War. We, we were dealing with Saddam Hussein's aggression against uh, Kuwait, which is a straightforward Article 51 exercise in self-defense. 
second half was dominated by this question of humanitarian intervention posed in particular by the collapse of the former Yugoslavia. Um, David Aaron, Malcolm Rifkin, were deeply involved with, with me in that. And it, it will remain controversial, partly because there are many people, and I think David Owen in, in, in probably is one of them, who believe that if we had bombed earlier, if we had used force more decisively earlier, the war might have ended in 93 or 94 rather than in 95. And that remains a matter of controversy about which many of us have, have, have written books. But there was that, and remains that feeling. It was followed by the interventions for humanitarian purposes, basically, in Kosovo and by this country in Sierra Leone, both on a relatively minor scale and both apparently successful. And this built up the feeling that now was the time to, 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 to change the rules, really, so as to make possible, indeed almost obligatory, humanitarian intervention. And uh, the... Uh, the step forward was taken at the uh, UN summit, uh, the assembly, when the right to protect, as defined by Kofi Annan, the Secretary General, was endorsed. And that was a sort of high watermark. But it's my thesis, and here I hope, you know, I can begin to say things that people will disagree with. It's my thesis that international law lags behind events and is shaped by events. And that it isn't conferences of lawyers or academics who will actually settle this matter. The, general, the view about humanitarian intervention will overwhelmingly be influenced by the most recent experiences of it. And of course, since the examples that I've talked about, we have had the intervention, I believe, disastrous in Iraq. Of course, not originally justified on humanitarian grounds. But the humanitarian argument that it must be right to depose a brutal dictator. Uh, that, uh, that argument became uh, dominant once the, the, the previous argument about weapons of mass destruction uh, collapsed in uh, ignominy. So we're left now overwhelmingly with the argument that it must be a good thing, must have been a good thing, uh, to dethrone the brutal dictator. Well, I think the outcome of that and the actual brutal chaos which we have helped to create instead of the brutal dictator uh, has caused a, cast a blight over the whole theoretical argument about humanitarian intervention. Um, and and it's, that's where we are now. But that problem is not just an Iraq problem. In fact, it's not mainly an Iraq problem because the basic decisions have been taken about Iraq. Uh, we, will, we will withdraw, the Americans will withdraw, we will be leave behind a country which will luck, will stay united with luck, but will be totally different in its character from the country which we announced that we were going to establish. And that seems to be a fact. I'm not sure there are any more huge decisions to be taken about that. That's what's going to happen. But this question of humanitarian intervention is going to crop up again and again to Gordon Brown and to his successors as uh, uh, Prime Minister. I want to take as the specific example before us now not uh, Somalia, not Zimbabwe, though those are examples which could be followed, but um, Darfur, where the war is, I believe, four years old today, longer than the Bosnian War, where there is a comparison, must be a comparison in people's minds with the uh, Rwanda massacre, 
after the Rwanda massacre and the failure of the international community to do anything about that, the most eloquent of, of, of our statesmen, Clinton, Blair, uh, Kofi Annan, said, well, of course, we've learned from the lessons from Rwanda, and uh, that won't happen again. It is happening again uh, over a longer period and possibly eventually on an even larger scale. Uh, how are we, given our experience and given the pieces on the board at the moment, how are we going to cope not just with Darfur, but with the kinds of examples of, of that kind which will come up again. I don't think the idea, though you get hints of it in the Wall Street Journal, I don't think the idea that you can actually, with bombs and missiles, impose a solution on the Darfur question is really going to hold sway, gather strength after our, our experience in Iraq. So we are, this is a... Uh, country, a province the size of uh, France, riven with, uh, with uh, tribal divisions of, 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 of long standing. And so I think a, a, a solution by occupation, as it were, <coughs> by bombing an occupation is, is, is out, as Margaret Thatcher might have, might have said. Uh, so you are left, therefore, with reaching an agreement, a political agreement with the government of uh, uh, Sudan, of which elements will have to be a regional uh, a, a institutional settlement, uh, a federal s solution of some kind, uh, a peacekeeping force, um, humanitarian help and economic help uh, of all kinds. How do you build up in 2007 the kind of pressures which would make such a settlement feasible? Uh, I don't think myself that selective bombing Will be would be an effective pressure from what I from what I, I know. Um, I, I think that that is unlikely to be be uh, effective. Um, but I think that sanctions, to some extent, are already in place. Uh, there's a prospect of greater sanctions. Sanctions, though, which have to be devised to the greatest possible extent to spare the ordinary people of Sudan, particularly the people in the south, uh, who have, can bear no possible responsibility for Darfur, uh, and concentrate smart sanctions on the people and the interests who are mainly involved in, 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 in creating this situation. Maybe a no-fly no zone, uh, and other possibilities uh, exist. This is only going to be achieved through diplomacy, and diplomacy through the UN, because it is from the UN that the authority to uh, reach a solution can most easily be found. This means dealing with China, as Jeffrey was saying, uh, the, the, the role of China in the world, fortunately recognized in 1945, rather oddly, by giving Chiang Kai-shek a seat on the Security Council, but the wheel turns, and that proves to be, in a, 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 I think, a sound decision. But it does mean persuading China that her investment in the Sudan, that her friendship with the Sudanese government, can best be protected not by backing Sudan in what is happening in Darfur, but in piling on the pressure for her to change policy. And that is an exercise in, in diplomacy between China and the rest of the world, which is underway, uh, and for the reasons which Jeffrey was suggesting, I don't think we should uh, uh, despair of. We have to reckon that there is a diminished respect for the judgment of the superpower, uh, and that the Americans, even though they have our help, I don't think our help is really relevant to this. 
uh, uh, find it difficult to rally support in, say, the Arab League or the African Union for the kind of pressures on Sudan which are necessary because their judgment, not so much their good faith, but their judgment is, I think, heavily questioned. I think a mistake has been made, and this is a, a crucial point of principle, in allowing the International Criminal Court to start issuing orders for the arrest of prominent Sudanese in connection with Darfur. This is a huge issue of principle, but I think there are times when peace and justice are separate objectives, and you occasionally have to choose between them, as we had to do in Northern Ireland, <coughs> as uh, South Africans have to do uh, after apartheid, and that to do as the International Criminal Court is doing, as it's done in Uganda, and it's now doing in, 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 in Darfur, actually to get its own processes going before there is peace, uh, directed against those who may or may not, but who are alleged to have committed bad crimes, even if this means prejudicing the chances of the political agreement which is necessary, I think this is a, a, a difficult decision, a difficult choice, but I don't think we're serious about international affairs if we don't recognize that this choice between peace and justice will occasionally have to be made, as we know, in Northern Ireland. So I, I don't despair of the piling up of pressures. I don't despair that Sudan, which, is, uh, which the political establishment is divided, constantly arguing among themselves, I don't despair building up the pressures so that a settlement is possible. I, I had two talks, as it happens, with the President of Sudan before Christmas uh, because I think the carrots of this, uh, of, of this approach, the, the, the offers which can be made of help once Darfur is settled are also an important part. And as a sort of private enterprise effort, uh, some of us uh, had a hand in this, but we made it clear that there was no possibility of progress of offering the carrots, of offering help, uh, to the Sudan in, in bringing itself together uh, until the Darfur question was settled. So I think that, that that combination of pressures and incentives has to be mobilized by the international community, including Britain, with all the, the wit and experience which we can bring to bear, <coughs> mobilizing the, the knowledge which we have possess about the Sudan. This will be ad hoc. This will be a, a Sudan settlement, if we're lucky and skillful. It won't respond to any great general principle. And that, I think, is, is what Gordon Brown, all future prime ministers, have to recognize out of recent experience. It is no good generalizing. It is no good making great uh, efforts of rhetoric or laying down general principles which you intend to apply everywhere, regardless of circumstances. In these cases, you have to use the knowledge, the cards, the pressures, which you can for that particular case. And you will be accused of double standards. You have to do what you can, where you can, and not try and generalize to an extent which simply will arouse uh, disappointment. Thank you very much, Lord Hurd, particularly for tackling head-on one of the great issues of the day, which has actually been talked about by students uh, at this very moment in the street outside, I think. So now, uh, Sir Malcolm Rifkind, um, who I think is going to say something about the transatlantic dimension, which is almost impossible to keep out of any discussion of British foreign policy. Thank, Thank you very much indeed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Harold Macmillan, who was very briefly Foreign Secretary, uh, said in his memoirs that foreign secretaries are often in a cruel dilemma. Their speeches hover between the cliché and the indiscretion. They are either dull or dangerous. 
Uh, you may feel sometimes they're both, but I want to emphasize this, is, this definition only applies to serving foreign secretaries. Those who have since retired are the font of all wisdom. Now, uh, we are asked this evening to contemplate the consequences uh, of having a new British Prime Minister and the challenges facing the next Prime Minister. We presume it's going to be Gordon Brown. Uh, I think Geoffrey Howe mentioned that uh, Gordon Brown is already displaying uh, serious authoritarian tendencies. Uh, we, heard, we saw the former Cabinet Secretary uh, referring to Gordon Brown as having Stalinist tendencies. Well, I have to say, I think that was extremely unfair to Stalin. <laughs> he never claimed to be anything other than what he actually was, and that is something always to bear in mind. But in trying to give advice to the next Prime Minister, we have to take into account where we start from. And the two preliminary points I would make are these. First of all, with regard to Mr. Blair, he has been a, a very, very powerful uh, Prime Minister, as uh, David Owen says, he has effectively been his own uh, Foreign Secretary. Uh, sometimes comparisons because of Iraq are made with Anthony Eden. I think if you have to look back in British history uh, for an even closer comparison, uh, I would make a, a very direct comparison between Tony Blair and the way he's conducted his office and Neville Chamberlain. Now, of course, Neville Chamberlain supported appeasement. No one would accuse uh, Tony Blair uh, of being an appeaser. That is not the point I make. It's the style and the way in which they have conducted uh, their responsibilities. Like Neville Chamberlain, Tony Blair has supreme belief in his own personal qualities. Like Neville Chamberlain, disregarding the Foreign Office, disregarding the traditional diplomacy, appointing special emissaries of the Prime Minister in order to go ahead, overseas and do his bidding, and having this great belief that somehow by his own personal missions to various foreign potentates, he can persuade them to change the course of history. Chamberlain, of course, seeking unsuccessfully to do that at Munich. But one remembers Tony Blair just before the Iraq War going to Damascus, short visit against all the advice that he had received, believing that in a couple of hours with President Assad, he could persuade the Syrians to reverse their 50 years of foreign policy and support the invasion of Iraq. So I think the parallel is a correct one, and it's one that is important to bear in mind when Gordon Brown determines how he's going to deal with the question of transatlantic relations, as well as the other matters that he will have to take responsibility for. And we cannot ignore where he's starting from. We have an extraordinary paradox at this moment in time. We have a British Prime Minister who is closer to the United States President than at any time in the last hundred years. That normally would be a source of great approval for the British public. The British public have no problem in principle about British governments being close to American governments, about British Prime Ministers uh, being uh, friends and able to influence American presidents. And yet the extraordinary fact is that this Prime Minister is not only closer to an American President, but as a consequence of the way in which he's conducted our foreign policy and the way the United States has conducted theirs, uh, the British public are perhaps more disillusioned with our relationship with the United States, less willing to automatically support that close friendship and that close alliance than any time in our lifetime. And that is something not only disturbing and worrying, uh, but something which should be at the top of Gordon Brown's uh, agenda. And so when we look at how he might wish to address the question of transatlantic relations, there are, of course, serious limits 
and what he can do. Uh, he's not some new prime minister, either from a different party or from a different persuasion. He has been the second most powerful minister throughout the 10 years of the Blair prime ministership. And indeed, it must go without saying almost that if Gordon Brown had refused to endorse the Iraq war, Britain would not have gone to war because it is almost inconceivable that Blair could have carried the cabinet and his party uh, without that kind of unity. So that's quite a difficult position to start from. There is an assumption you hear in certain quarters that Gordon Brown is only having to deal with the fag end of the Bush administration. Bush is on his way out. Yes, in one sense that is true, but don't exaggerate the point. President Bush has another year and a half in office, and in a year and a half from now, we will be right approaching the date of the next British general election. So anything that Gordon Brown wishes to do in relation to British-American relations and his relationship with the United States president has to be with the current president. He can't just wait 18 months and then when a new president takes office uh, in the same year that we are likely to have a general election, expect that all will be sweetness and light. So it has to start from now. And secondly, there is a deep problem that Brown has. And it would be a challenge for any prime minister at this moment in time. He has to distance himself from President Bush and everything that has made Bush the most unpopular president in living memory and an unsuccessful president in living memory. But he's got to do so in a way that does not give one iota of comfort to those who would like Britain in the long term as a strategic decision to in any way weaken their relationship with the United States as a country. It must be in Britain's interest it must be in the interests of the Western world, and I think of the world as a whole, that a country like the United Kingdom continues to have the closest possible relationship with the United States. And that, of course, also applies to other European and other Western countries. But Brown has the challenge of uh, ensuring that the British public's disillusion with the United States does not increase or continue, while at the same time he withdraws from the embrace that Blair and Bush have seemed to enjoy. And it can only be achieved by showing that his support for the United States is there, but it is not unconditional. And if he wishes to pursue such an approach, he will have the precedent of virtually every previous British Prime Minister of all political persuasions. Churchill often disagreed with Roosevelt without it destroying their relationship. Harold Wilson famously refused to send troops to Vietnam without uh, Lyndon Johnson casting him into the outer darkness. Uh, Margaret Thatcher had an incredibly close relationship with Ronald Reagan, but she wielded her handbag at him in a most visible way when Grenada was invaded or when the United States tried to stop Britain uh, entering into contracts over the Soviet gas uh, pipeline. And in the government in which uh, Douglas Hurd and I served, particularly under John Major, a deep disagreement with regard to the United States over Bosnian policy. And I mention that particular example because it's highly relevant. Because it, the case, the fact is you can disagree with the United States without it destroying the relationship. Douglas, who was foreign secretary through the earlier years uh, of the Bosnian disagreements with the Clinton administration, we now know from Douglas's own autobiography that at a latter stage, during that Bosnian conflict, the United States administration, when there was a vacancy in the office of Secretary General of NATO, the most important international office available, tried to persuade Douglas to allow his name to go forward for that post. 
So far from the disagreement destroying the relationship, the United States has grown up. It understands that other democracies can disagree with it, and sometimes it may be in the United States' own interest that they do disagree, as long as it comes from a position of shared values. And so Brown has to do what Blair has always refused to do. Uh, we were told by Christopher Mayer, the former British ambassador in Washington, when he appeared on a radio program shortly after he ceased being ambassador, uh, Christopher Mayer said uh, that uh, Mr. Blair has always said that he supports the United States president in public, but he's very candid with them in private. Uh, actually, the ambassador went on to say he'd been present at these private meetings and he wasn't very candid in private either. But that's not the point. It is not good enough simply to say you disagree in private. Just occasionally, not very often, you shouldn't go looking for disagreements, but just every so often there is a genuine difference of judgment. And that is when a British Prime Minister can only be true to his responsibilities by fearlessly stating that in an open and clear way. What are the issues where that might be relevant at this moment in time or over the next year? Well, I think certainly on Iranian policy. And to be fair, the British government has sought to pursue a softer approach with regard to Iran. But I think the United Kingdom, I would hope to see under a British Prime Minister, would make it quite clear that what is needed is a potential normalization of relations between the United States and Iran. And only if Iran, having been offered such a reconciliation and normalization, refused it, only then does the tough policy require to be emphasized, and only then would the tough policy be more likely to gain support. And I would hope that Gordon Brown as Prime Minister would expressly reject the whole concept of preemptive wars. It's that concept which was most used to justify uh, the disastrous Iraqi war. And although we know that preemptive wars are, are unlikely to be contemplated in the near future, uh, nevertheless, they have not been formally renounced. They can only be contemplated in the most extreme circumstances. And Gordon Brown would do himself a favor uh, if he made it clear that no British government will support that kind of approach to international politics uh, in the foreseeable uh, future. So I would conclude these remarks by simply making one final point, that if Brown was able to take that approach, uh, if he was able to emphasize uh, that while he can't be expected to renounce the policies which he was partly involved in agreeing over the last 10 years, that his whole approach, the body language, the chemistry, the whole nature of the relationship will be close, will be warm, but it will not be unconditional, then I conclude by saying he will not only be doing himself a favor, he will not only be serving British national interests, he'll actually also be doing the United States a favor as well. Thank you very much. Malcolm. Well, we've, we've left our discussants a virtually impossible task of following that, but I'm, I'm going to ask them not to do the book review that Graham Zigner referred to earlier, just if they could hit one or two big points which they think are particularly <coughs> pertinent at the moment. I'd be most grateful. Robin Thank Emma. you. Thanks, Christopher. Um, well, in the context of commentary, but also in the context of uh, challenges uh, for the next Prime Minister, let me make a few comments about the context. Because ultimately the challenges that the next Prime Minister will face, Gordon Brown or other, uh, will be defined somewhat by the context in which he operates. And uh, I'll try to refer to some of the comments that we've heard so far. The first would be that I think that whoever uh, takes power uh, after George W. Bush, we're going to be facing a defensive United States, whether it's a Democratic leadership or a um, Republican leadership in the future. 
and a defensive United States um, will be a much more complex partner for the uh, UK uh, in general and in the world. Um, Jeffrey Howe uh, mentioned uh, how you can have a very difficult relationship with the United States uh, even outside uh, the recent context. Grenada, Malcolm Rifkin mentioned this as well. You could bring in the Falklands and Reykjavik. But I think there's a fundamental change that's happened since 9-11, which cuts across both political parties uh, in the American perception of the risk for international terrorism. Um, and uh, it's seen differently. It's seen as a problem that exists outside the United States um, uh, and one that must be confronted outside, which is a fundamental difference from uh, a European perspective, including that, I'd say, of the United Kingdom. Um, and ultimately, in this context, the capacity for the UK um, to be able to serve as the kind of influencing uh, junior partner to the United States is much more complex than in the past and during the Cold War. Ultimately, the United States is probably working on a different uh, calculus of risks and rewards uh, than is the UK. And therefore, I would argue that I think it's going to be a complex partner um, to deal with in the future. The second is whatever happens, uh, we're going to face a very uncertain and fluid European Union. Uh, Jeffrey Howe talked about how we should treat them as a, as a uh, as a potential partner in so many challenges. I'll come to this in a minute. I agree with him. Um, but it's going to be, again, a very difficult partner to work with because of the insecurities and uncertainties that it faces after the failure of the two constitutional treaties, enlargement to 27, etc. The one area that I think is emerging, not because of any great strategic planning uh, within the EU that will be a challenge to the, to, to the UK, is that aspects of a common and foreign security policy uh, are emerging inevitably uh, as an area for cooperation. Uh, the EU is being pulled into its periphery, uh, into responding to challenges in North Africa, in the Caucasus, um, in Russia. And uh, countries further afield, such as China, are looking for relationships uh, with, the EU, with the EU that the, EU could, that the UK could play an effective role uh, in trying to, to mediate. Um, the simple fact of the matter is the EU lacks, unfortunately, the mechanisms and resources at the moment to be a constructive global player. Uh, and also, at the moment, we lack an effective transatlantic infrastructure uh, with which to compensate. Um, a final aspect of the landscape um, is that it is changing, to state the obvious, externally. Um, we talked about the rise of China. I think it was mentioned that this is a power that seems to be rising wisely uh, rather than rashly at the moment. But however wisely it rises, it is going to change uh, the balance of power interests across Asia. Uh, and I'm not sure the extent to which the UK or its EU partners are fully uh, looking into the changing relationship, for example, between Japan uh, and China, and some of the concerns that are likely to emerge uh, in coming years. The stalling of democratic change, not only in Russia, um, but in Latin America, the rise of political Islam, and then the many transnational uh, challenges that we face today, whether it be from global health, international terrorism, etc., are all ones that provide this very complex soup and context uh, within which uh, a future prime minister must work. When we think about options for the next prime minister, I think... Uh, I, would, I didn't hear the phrase mentioned, but maybe I would try to condense uh, the comments, I think, of at least three of the speakers in terms of the transatlantic relationship. The concept of, a, of the UK being a bridge no longer works. I don't think it's relevant, and I don't think it's appropriate. Um, by all means, uh, as Malcolm Rifkin mentioned, we should keep aspects and practical aspects of the special relationship. It's not just in our interest, but I think in the US interest as well to retain close intelligence cooperation uh, military cooperation. Um, and also, I think it's in both our interests to keep aspects of the transatlantic security relationship strongly in place, including in the context of NATO from, from the point of view of planning and training and, uh, and command and control and so on. But ultimately, 
Um, I think the UK's um, positions on most international challenges uh, find themselves closer to that of their EU partners than it does to the US, whether it be Iran, uh, the importance accorded to Africa, um, how we approach the Arab-Israeli conflict, climate change, Russia as a country that needs to be engaged. Malcolm Rifkin mentioned uh, the differences this caused uh, with, with Maggie Thatcher some time ago and how we approach and think about international terrorism more in the context of a civil war than an external war. So ultimately, um, I think I would agree with, with Malcolm Rifkind, constructive disagreement at times, which will reflect this reality, um, is possibly uh, a position that the next Prime Minister is definitely going to have to take. But more importantly, perhaps, the, the, the scope for the UK to play a leadership role really defines itself in its ability to create and develop EU positions before planning how to negotiate them with the United States. There's been a sense, certainly in my mind, that, that uh, the UK has seen its role as either standing in the middle and trying to bridge the two sides, or in many cases picking the US side and then trying to find if it can turn its European partners around uh, to the common UK-US position. I don't think this is a, a, a credible uh, stance to take in the future. Um, and uh, certainly, uh, I think this was a, a comment that although uh, Douglas Hurd didn't have a chance to make it today, this was a, a theme that certainly I picked up in his essay in his book. How does the UK do this then? Because ultimately, it is a huge range of challenges uh, for the next Prime Minister. Number one, um, pick partners, different partners for different problems. You cannot assume the EU um, is going to work uh, cohesively across the whole range of international challenges it faces. The UK can leverage its sort of post-imperial position, its diplomatic experience. Um, uh, as as uh, Jeffrey Howe mentioned, uh, the, the position of a great nation rather than uh, maybe a great power at this moment. London is a global capital from which the UK can serve as an arbiter, perhaps on the Arab-Israeli conflict or on Iran, where it can serve as, as a leader, perhaps, as was mentioned, on climate change, uh, on foreign assistance, maybe on the transatlantic economic relationship. And to turn to, to Douglas Hurd's comment about humanitarian intervention, uh, it strikes me that, as he said, we shouldn't be distracted by charges of hypocrisy from fo focusing on particular challenges. Um, we do seem to lack uh, the resources and the planning capacity from which to be able to take even uh, a problem such as Darfur forward. Uh, right now, humanitarian interventionism seems to be driven more by priorities of security than by priorities um, of, of humanitarian uh, uh, Priorities. So just to conclude, um, and to draw in, I thought, a, a very fair comment uh, that Lord Owen made, um, uh, certainly in terms of uh, the Prime Minister's style and the new Prime Minister's style, concentration of power, whether in the Cabinet Office or elsewhere, um, does indeed, I think, create an illusion of control and of influence over this great uh, mass of very complex challenges for the UK, and ultimately the ability to form a more cohesive form of government where um, uh, other views uh, and expertise is, is, is drawn in is going to be vital. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robin. Now we have uh, Gideon Ruckman as our last uh, contributor. He's been very patient, um, and I hope he'll be as concise. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you very much. Well, one theme we've heard coming back and back this evening is the special relationship. And I think really looking ahead for the next 10 years of foreign policy, That'll be the big question. Has the experience of Iraq been so searing that this pillar of British foreign policy, the special relationship, will be rethought and uh, changed fundamentally? Sir Malcolm uh, portrayed Tony Blair's decision to, to, 
to go along with the Iraq war as in some sense aberrant, I hope I'm not mis- misrepresenting him, but as out of step with a British tradition of occasionally saying, OK, we actually don't agree with you. I think perhaps that's slightly unfair because I think Blair was faced with a very, very stark choice. As Bush would put it, are you with us or against us? And I think most British prime ministers faced with that question would have said, we're with you. I certainly think that Margaret Thatcher would have. However, it's, it's worked out badly. The question is, next time that question is asked... Will the British Prime Minister's response once again be, we're with you? Or will there have been such a loss of confidence and faith in the special relationship and in American judgment that the answer this time will be a different one? I think there's an interesting comparison to be made with France here because I think if you look at the way Britain responded to the the crisis of Iraq, it was in a way playing out historical instincts which I think were put in place at the time of Suez. Suez was such a debacle that the British concluded we really can't freelance anymore. We can't afford to get out of step with the US. And that instinct was, I think, the one that, in the end, uh, lay behind the British establishment's decision, Tony Blair's decision, to go along with the US. In the end, the special relationship was the bedrock of policy. The French, after Suez, drew very opposite conclusions. Their conclusion was, we've got to build up Europe as a, as a counterweight. We've got to uh, make... We can't be a superpower on our own, but perhaps Europe can be a superpower... And they, too, I think, were playing out their post-Suez instincts when the Iraq war crisis broke. And I remember sitting in Brussels at the time where a lot of the arguments were being played out and thinking, this argument between Chirac and Blair is going to turn out very badly for one of them and very well for the other. One of them is going to come out looking really good. As it was, I think they both came out looking looking bad. And in a way, both of them are having to rethink, or Britain and France are having to rethink their post-Suez ideas. For the British, the special relationship has led us into trouble. But I think for the French, it's also been a problem, and it has some relevance to the choices Britain now faces, because I think the French felt, okay, this is Europe's moment. But when they attempted to rally Europe and say, okay, we're we're, going to stand out against this, uh, what they correctly identified as a mistaken American policy, they found Europe wasn't behind them. Europe was divided. They couldn't assume that they could lead Europe. And so they're also having a mini-crisis about their own foreign policy. And I think you'll see, you saw that in the French rejection of the EU constitution in 2005. You see it in the anti-European rhetoric in the current French presidential election campaign. Why is that relevant to Britain? Because I think it plays to this question of Europe as the alternative focus for British foreign policy that we heard from Lord Howe. But that's a constant theme in the debate about how Britain should structure its foreign policy. The argument is, look, we're stuck in a permanently subordinate relationship with the US. If we went with Europe, at least it would be a partnership of equals. We all punch about the same weight. We're all flyweights. But maybe if together we could be a heavyweight. It's a nice idea, but it's one I don't find totally convincing for a couple of reasons. The first is that it is a partnership of equals, but to some extent it's also a partnership of rivals. The European powers, of course, we're all in this joint enterprise together, but if you look at big foreign policy questions, the European countries are frequently at odds with each other. Iraq was the biggest, the most dramatic example, but it's not the only example. If you look now at policy towards Russia, there are big divisions within the European Union which reflect quite entrenched views of national interest which are not going to go away. A smaller example, Germany's bid to get onto the UN Security Council they weren't backed by the other European countries. The Italians were desperate to stop them getting on the national... Uh, sorry, the, the, UN, the UN Security Council. So, again, these rivalries bubble up. 
Another example, Germany and Poland, they disagree profoundly on, on, on a number of issues. You're not going to get an EU foreign policy, a coherent EU foreign policy, without having majority voting. But I think majority voting is a step too far for most EU countries, certainly a step too far for Britain and a step too far for France. If you look at the constitutional debate, which took place at the same time as the Iraq war, both Britain and France wouldn't accept an EU foreign policy decided by majority voting. And I can see why, because if you had an EU foreign policy in which it was decided by majority vote, that would actually be legally binding. And that would be far more constraining even than the special relationship. The special relationship is a constraint on British policy, but if you like, it's a restraint that we've internalised. We sort of say to ourselves, well, when, it's, when there's a big crisis, we, we really want to be with the Americans. But we're not legally bound to be with the Americans. We could make a decision not to be. If we had a, a, an EU foreign policy, and as I said, the only EU foreign policy that could really work would be one that was decided by majority vote, I don't think uh, the British or the French would be prepared to accept that, or they'd find it very, very hard. Behind all these questions of policy, and this is the, the last point I'll make because I'm aware of uh, time constraints, are, are bigger questions of cultural ties. And there, I'm possibly to argue against myself, I think that there there is something which is undermining the special relationship over, over a longer period. We've always thought that uh, language and cultural ties of kinship which suggests stronger ties with the United States but I think if you look at British political culture at the moment it's increasingly in tune with Europe look particularly at the Conservative Party and the way David Cameron is repositioning the Conservative Party partly that is a response to the debacle of Iraq when Cameron stands up and says I'm not a neoconservative he's clearly making a point that he's noticed what's happened but if if you look at the kind of domestic policy positions that Cameron's taking, when he says the National Health Service is at the heart of my political philosophy, a huge system of socialised medicine, I cannot imagine any Republican saying that. It is, however, a statement that would be perfectly acceptable to, say, a German Christian Democrat. I think one of the things that that divides the political cultures of Britain and the US increasingly is the absence of a religious right in, in Britain. The special relationship when Thatcher and Reagan were were at their height was very, very close. But at that point, the religious right were not quite so important in the Republican world. It seems to me that increasingly they are. And that means that the Conservative Party and the Republican Party increasingly sound very different. And so the cultural ties which underline the special relationship, I think, are being gradually undermined. I think the final point that one wants to make, and it's one that came up a number of times, is that faith in American judgment has been massively shaken by the Iraq war. I remember when I was at The Economist, we did some opinion polls, and a lot of the opinion polls seemed to be showing that uh, the British were pretty close to Europe, or British public opinion wanted a strengthened relationship with Europe. But there was one question which I thought was particularly telling. We asked, in a big international crisis, who would you trust, Europe or the United States? And about 85% of British people said the United States. And I think that was a legacy that went, a way of thinking that went all the way back to the Second World War. But I do wonder, if we ask that question again now, what would be the response? And I think a big question going forward is, is, will be, is the British disillusionment with the US and with US judgment, specifically a disillusionment with the Bush administration, if you get a President Obama or President Clinton, will we go back to a, a state where we think, okay, we can trust these guys, we can work very closely with them, Or is one of the legacies of Iraq 
that Britain will never be quite as trusting in the special relationship ever again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the panel. We have a uh, short time for questions. I think we can probably go on for 15 minutes if my colleagues uh, agree. Um, I must insist that you ask short and sharp questions and please identify one member of the panel that you'd like an answer from because although all of them would be interesting, we're not going to do it. have a tour de table. So I think I see Charles Grant sitting back there. There is a microphone coming around. The general assumption of all the former foreign secretaries is that British foreign policy has been pretty disastrous under Blair. I think on Europe it hasn't been. It's been quite successful. It was when Malcolm Rifkin was foreign secretary that we had the empty chair boycotting all EU meetings to punish the Europeans for not taking our diseased beef. People forget how we... I think British influence has been greatly... Question, Charles. I'm coming to it. (laughs) Greatly enhanced um, uh, in, in recent years, despite staying out of the euro... Uh, despite the Iraq war, because we come up with positive, constructive ideas on economic reform, European defence, climate change, and so on. So my, 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 my question is, can anybody on the panel agree with me that actually Gordon Brown's European policy should, should, and I say this controversially, be rather similar to Tony Blair's policy. It should be a constructive engagement, working with different countries on different issues, in contrast to that practised in the Rifkin years. I, I have no option. Right. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to launch into a defence of mad cow disease, so there will be another opportunity for, for the empty chair point to be responded to. But I, I think you're wrong, Charles, to say that Blair's European policy has been noticeably successful. Just think of the three most important uh, responses to that. First of all, he wanted Britain into the European currency, the euro. He has been so unsuccessful in that. He hasn't lost a, a referendum. He hasn't even dared hold a referendum uh, on that, a central part of his policy. Point two, he came out in full support of the European Constitution. It needed the French and Dutch electorate uh, to completely destroy that particular initiative. And thirdly, through his Iraq policy, he, not just Bush, Blair as well, did more to divide Europe with Chirac and the Germans on one side, Britain on the other side, the most divisive policy, so far as the European Union, that we have seen in the last 50 years. Gentleman up there. Yes. Um, in um, a book called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, he talks about what he describes as a delusion of people who are religious. What frightens me is having listened to four very eminent foreign secretaries talk about Iraq as if it's a disaster, whereas the reality is it's a, it's a bunch of very extreme religious fanatics killing another bunch of uh, religious I won't say fanatics but uh, religious people it's an intra-religious civil war that's going on yes you can criticise Blair and Bush for maybe not not putting in sufficient people my question therefore is is to maybe ask whoever is the least religious of our uh, panellists to maybe comment on my observation and maybe then reframe as to whether our policy in Iraq prima facie was not the disaster it's, it, it's turned into. I wouldn't presume to make judgments about my um, panellist's religious conviction, but I'm going to ask Lord Owen anyway. <laughs> of the f- four of us, I think I'm the only one who supported going into Iraq, and I think it had and still has a great deal of logic I believe it has been the most bungled operation, militarily and politically, that we've seen, well, I've called since Gallipoli and since uh, some parts of the First World War. 
Now, uh, you've only got to look at the world now with its problems in uh, Arab-Israeli terms and in terms of uh, Iran and Pakistan and other parts, that if it had been a success, if we had been able to get a secular government in Iraq, uh, we would have had all those problems would have been massively better, are, say, the critics, and they have a very strong case, and history may, I doubt you can ever prove it, but history may find in their favor, it was doomed to fail. It's a perfectly logical and sensible argument. I believe if you look at the basic fundamental decisions, the total absence of aftermath planning and all of these different facilities, debathification, taking rid of the Iraq army, a whole raft of them, I don't want to go into them all. If, you, if those have been got a lot more right, if you like, then I believe there would have been a different outcome. But your religious question is true, and that is one of the problems that we are going to face in dealing with Islam, is the division within Islamic religion. But I believe you can best deal with the religious issues as a politician by not, and deliberately not, wearing your own religion on your sleeve. And I think one of the great problems, and many others, of both Bush and Blair is this overt religiosity. They're not new. We've had many senior political leaders who've had every bit as devout, arguably more so, than either of those two individuals. But they have deliberately sought to take it out of their political framework. And I believe that is an essential element, is to get back to secular global politics. Thank you. Question in the middle here. Pass the mic along, please. Stephen Dion, former BBC correspondent. Uh, question for Lord Owen. Um, Lord Owen, you mentioned, you used the word dialogue. You talked specifically talking about Syria and Iran, the importance of, of dialogue. Um, maybe it's kind of a simple journalist, but I think that dialogue is actually very important in all human relations. Um, and the fact that you have to raise it suggests that you think it's not going to be there. Uh, is this personal? I mean, is this something, do you think, that it's an error that Blair has made? And do you think that Brown is going to follow this as well? That, in fact, they are so full of their own importance that they're not prepared to talk to other people? No, I don't think it's fair to claim that Blair would not have given his own free choice. I think he would have been, and in some extent was, in uh, dialogue with Iran and Syria, uh, even Hamas and Hezbollah. I think he's much more prone, and I think, to, in fairness to him, he's been taught that and has also practiced it in Northern Ireland. We've been brought through this, through a whole series of our old colonial disputes, to realize that many of these things demand dialogue and you can't be too fussy about who you talk to. That, unfortunately, is not a lesson which Bush... My criticism of Blair is, I think, that in, although we have to go into this relationship as a junior partner, and we all know that, there is, in my view, an absolute, and that is that you pursue British interests and you do not accept a dictation about how you will handle different countries. That is up to America, that is up to yourself. You can have your partnership, you can be in a military alliance, and you can still hold a different diplomatic stance. Thank you. There's a question here in the front row. And I'm good, I want to, with the greatest respect to Lord Owen, I'd like to bring in his colleagues as well. Um, Nick Bowen, European Business School. I wanted to ask a question really about Latin America, which I think Robin Nivellis has mentioned once, and I think nobody else has mentioned. Uh, given the fact that we talk about Brazil now as one of the BRIC countries, as one of the countries that is developing, 
given the fact that Lord Treesman, I think, has just issued a month ago uh, a public policy strategy on Latin America. I wonder at what stage, and perhaps this is for Robin Niblett and one of the foreign secretaries to take, I wonder at what stage Latin America actually, if ever, moves up the UK foreign policy agenda. Well, Lord Howe, you've been watching Latin America for many years, I imagine. <laughs> is this something that interests you? I, I, I think it's very difficult to see it moving as a, as a unit. You talk about Latin America moving up, as though it was likely to take a, on a European scale, so to speak. It is much more fragmentary culture. Brazil certainly is, is the largest. But I think that the political evolution of all those countries falls well behind China, for example, or India, for example. Brazil, I think, one includes in the brick block because one wants to have a Latin American brick in the block, so to speak. <laughs> but I, I don't think one can visualize any fast acceleration of the kind you may have in mind. Probably no, you were asked I'll, about. I'll say very, just very quickly, I think that the reason it doesn't get mentioned is it's caught somewhere in between um, the hyper-growth, let's say, of a China with all its potential and the very established and wealthy economies that if they could just grow by 1% or 0.5%, make a huge difference to wealth. These countries, if one can generalize about them, one shouldn't, but if one does, are caught somewhere in between uh, those two growth uh, tra trajectories. Uh, and as a result, I think it's just uh, our best hope is that at an EU level there will be an interest in negotiating with them. I don't see the UK playing a leadership role. I think there's a summit, isn't there, next year? But anyway, there's a question here in the, in the middle on the right. You, sir. It, yes, indeed. Yes. This one. Difficult choice, but please. <laughs> just, just wondered if any member of the panel would share the apparent view of uh, three quarters of the Russian people that uh, Volodya Putin has been good for them, uh, even if uh, in the case of the West, perhaps Boris Yeltsin was better. Lord Hurd. Boris Yeltsin carried on what Gorbachev had uh, begun and carried it to an amazing extent. I mean, he, he, he abandoned the, the leading role of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, he abandoned the Soviet Union. And, and so that put a cap on, on, the, on the conclusion of the, of, the, of the Cold War. There was an unreality about it, um, particularly as regards domestic affairs. There was an unreality about letting the privatization happen as it did. And uh, people at the time said to me, you know, all this money is going into the, into the, into the hands of, of, of thieves and robbers. I remember them saying that. And Putin is part of the wave back. What we don't know is how far that wave back will go. I, I'm personally not too gloomy about it. I think um, that there's a, a realism at work there uh, which will stop the return uh, to uh, absolute rule uh, before it reaches absolute rule. But I'm not sure about that. I think it's all to play for. I think it's entirely fascinating. I, I would just make one point on Russia, commenting on what Gideon said. Um, I think that the test of whether Europe is going to be a foreign policy unit. He, 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 he listed the disagreements, which are many. He didn't list the agreements, which are Iran, Palestine, a whole host of other things, where we actually act as Europeans. The test is going to be Russia. The divisions are there. He mentioned them. But I think the real test of the adultness of Europe as a foreign policy entity will be whether we follow what is our clear interest 
standing up, or not standing up to, but developing a cool relationship with a cool customer uh, on gas and all the rest of it, rather than going off in little sort of jaunts uh, as uh, Blair and uh, Schroeder and Chirac have done, uh, and, and trying to uh, suck up to him separately. That is going to be the real test yeah, of, of, of Europe as a foreign policy strength over the next, over the next few years. I'm afraid I can only take two more questions. There's one in the front row here, and I'll take one. This gentleman here on the right. Thank you. Um, Gideon Bresler. I just wanted to ask uh, Sir Malcolm Rifkin a question about his opinion as to where Gordon Brown should take the uh, Turkish membership of the EU. I think it's very easy for a British Prime Minister to take a pro-Turkish position. Uh, first of all, because the merits of the argument point in that direction, and for a lot of reasons we haven't got time to go into this evening. But secondly, because from a British perspective, the main concern of uh, many continental European countries doesn't apply. Uh, many continental European countries are concerned that the process of European integration will be slowed down, maybe stopped, if Turkey becomes a member. Uh, I suspect that would not cause Gordon <laughs> Brown to lose any sleep, uh, nor most of the British public. So he is able to apply a much more statesmanlike approach. Gideon, do you want to have a word on that? Because Turkey is, I think the yeah, economists no, have supported, the FT have supported Turkey. Sure, no, I mean, it is the, the, the conventional British position. I, I slightly wonder whether it will survive the next 10 years or so, because I think that migration and is becoming a big issue. And uh, if Turkey joins the EU, all Turks will have the right to move to Western Europe. Now, in previous enlargements, we said, well, that doesn't tend, tends not to happen. We've seen with Poland, people move in very, very large numbers. They can do. I think as it comes to the moment when Turkey might be about to join the EU, I think the migration issue and the free movement of people issue will become really quite a tense one. Thank you. The last question here, then. Um, I'd just like to ask whoever, whichever Foreign Secretary, Kosovo, Atasari, and Russia. It seems to me this is a big thing looming up for Brown. going to have to deal with this. Uh, Russians are making it quite clear they're not prepared to see an independent Kosovo and will exercise perhaps their veto at the Security Council. And they draw attention to Transnistria, Nagorno-Karabakh, and other parallels for them. What says the Foreign Secretaries? Well, perhaps this, would be, this is a good cue, actually, to give all, all my panellists one last, last word, if they wish. If they don't, they're, of course, uh, not forced to. But uh, let, let's start from the right and, and work round. Lord Hurd, is this something you want to say something about? Yeah, not passionately, but I will. <laughs> Atisari is one of the world's wise men. He's lived with this, this problem intimately for a long time. I, I, would, I would back his judgment. The result of backing his judgment may be that the uh, Russians uh, will not go along and they will not, you can't have a Security Council resolution, in which case Kosovo will declare independence and there'll be a crisis. I, I, I think it'll be a mini-crisis, but that will be a test of whether what I was saying about Putin is right. If he makes a major row of it, then my analysis is wrong. If he makes a noisy mini-row of it, uh, then we can live with that. Mm. Well done. I think that may be the most likely scenario, and I think the EU must be relaxed about recognition, and if people recognize at different uh, points in time, let them do so, and don't all feel you have to be compelled to recognize as a European Union. The fact of the matter is Russia has a good deal on its side on the arguments, but the one thing they don't have on their side, and the fundamental question, 
is when the KLA take to arms and fight in Kosovo, because we've not given them independence, are they prepared to put Russian soldiers in there to be shot at, or do they just expect NATO to put soldiers in? Since NATO is not prepared to put troops into the ground to be shot at, and certainly America is not prepared to, full stop, therefore basically the rest of Europe are not prepared to, you have to face the real politic of this situation, and it is that they can seize independence and will seize independence. Lord Howe, do you worry about Kosovo and Transnistria? Yeah, Kosovo wasn't born when I left foreign offices. I've not followed the growth of the, of the territory as closely as I should have done. I, I abdicate from comment. <laughs> <laughs> Judgment. <laughs> Uh, Kosovo is going to inevitably become independent, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that 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 whole episode is a very good example why you should not go to war against countries that haven't gone to war against you, except in the most exceptional circumstances. NATO attacked Serbia not to achieve an independent Kosovo, but with firm pledges that its objective was an autonomous Kosovo remaining within a free Serbia, hopefully in, in due course. Once you start a war, it gets out of your control, a new political dynamic takes place. And I don't blame the Kosovar Albanians. They realized they had this one window of opportunity, never before, probably never again, to use NATO's uh, attack on Serbia to wrest independence. It's a good example of how you don't begin an Iraq second example. You begin a war, and then suddenly it turns in a way quite different to the way you anticipated um, I just use it as a, a chance to make a comment about Russia. I think Russia's view of the EU as a whole is of one that is now a potential risk, if not threat, to its internal security and to its external interests. The extent to which it can keep the Kosovo thing going um, and actually not achieve resolution is probably something in its interest. Just a, a brief thing. I mean, I think that uh, the Kosovo question is one that shows the, the huge difficulty of forming a common EU policy. Behind the scenes, there are big divisions within the European Union over precisely what to do. And one of the reasons I think that the EU has embraced Atisari's position is because they think that's it's the one thing they could just about keep everybody on board for. But if this blows up into a crisis, and I think the Russians might play really quite hardball on this, if you look at the mood in Moscow at the moment, then I think once again you might see the EU dividing. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've covered an enormous range in a short period of time. I'm sure we could go on for another hour. I'm sorry to those of you who wanted to ask questions who haven't been able to. We've, uh, it's been evident that an enormous amount of knowledge and judgment is, is here on this, uh, uh, on this platform vested in our, our four uh, foreign secretaries and indeed in our discussants. I'm very grateful to them all. I'm just going to abuse your patience for about 20 seconds myself to say that the elements of foreign policy are many and various, and there is no silver bullet. There's no single item, whether it's diplomacy or the use of force. We know that uh, um, Neville Chamberlain, who's been talked about, had the backing of British public opinion at Munich, which turned out to be a fiasco. We know that Anthony Eden, um, who was a young foreign secretary in 1938-39, uh, but was a very experienced one at the time of Suez, when, which turned out to be a fiasco. So there's no one condition which guarantees success. But one of the things which I think is a necessary, if not sufficient, condition of success is a proper, effective debate on foreign policy, a debate actually involving public opinion, all of us, but also a debate between expert people uh, to whom the responsible authorities listen. 
I certainly hope that Gordon Brown uh, has got his television tuned to BBC Parliament this weekend, uh, but I'm sure that he will find various ways of listening. I hope he finds various ways of listening to the experience that undoubtedly uh, exists still in our political culture. Thank you very much indeed. For